Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we have a special interview with N.T. Wright about his new book, God and the Pandemic, a Christian reflection on the coronavirus and its aftermath, published in the UK by SBCK and in the States by Zondervan. It's due out at the end of May. Professor Wright was formerly research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews, my alma mater, where I worked under him for my PhD, and is currently a fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. In this episode, we talk about his new book, as well as some Christian reactions to the coronavirus and how people have been reflecting on what it means and, and what it might mean, these sorts of things. And so without further ado, here's the interview. Well, thanks for joining us today, Tom. It's great to have you on the pod. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So how are you and Maggie holding up in quarantine? Well, it's quite a business. Uh, we, we live now, because we moved to Oxford, we live quite close to our youngest son and his family, the grandchildren. And that's really the pressure because they're just up the road. And they're sweet little kids. There's an eight-year-old girl and a four-year-old boy. And they're just very lively and they like us and we like them. And we can't go and play with them. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a real downer. So the closest we can get is we're allowed to drive to opposite their front door and we open the car windows, talk to them out of the window, which seems very artificial. But the, the kids are okay with it. I think it's we who find it quite, quite stressful, actually. Um, apart from that, we get good grocery deliveries. We've got that sorted now. In fact, we've probably got too much food in the house. I'm in danger <laughs> of putting on too much weight. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll be nice when the libraries are open again. And it'll be nice when I can do my lectures at Wycliffe Hall face-to-face with students rather Mm. than um, simply recording them on this machine and then putting them onto a system where they then log on and view them. Um, You know, that's just, as I'm sure you're aware, that just ain't the same. So, but but, but living in the middle of Oxford now is is amazing. Um, It's beautiful. Uh, Oxford without students and without tourists is very strange. Right. And you get to sort of go around these quiet streets and look at the architecture and so on. Have you found quarantine to be particularly tricky as an Enneagram 7? Uh, maybe, but I've had so much to do. I finished off the Galatians commentary. Oh, great. The, the first four weeks of quarantine, that, that was just morning, noon, and night, really. So I was oh, just full on with that. And then at the same time, I was writing this little book on the coronavirus because people kept asking me about it. And I kept on saying things and thinking, oh, I should develop that a bit. And, and finally, I, I developed it to the point where I think I sent you the, the, the final. It's just a short thing. Um, and there were a couple of other similar things which came up, which really had to be knocked on the head in, in a couple of days. So I was really, really busy until about ooh, 10 days ago. And since then, having got rid of those two books, I've just been mopping up bits and pieces and thinking, oh, dear, yes, I was supposed to do this review or I was supposed to write that reference to somebody. And, oh, dear. Um, and especially the weather now is absolutely stunning. It's gone into sort of early summer heat and lovely blue sky. So one really ought to be outdoors all the time. So there we are. So your new book, God and the Pandemic, is not a book about solutions. It's not a theodicy. You know, it's not that sort of book. It flies in the face of those who want to speculate about human origins, you know, the conspiracy theories that are proliferating at the moment, as well as the kind of divine origin, right? The sort of questions about God's judgment, you know, and judgment for what and these yeah. sorts of things. Instead, your book is a call to lament. I'm wondering if you could provide a brief 
description of what you think the biblical view of lament is. Wow, yes. I mean, there are different kinds of lament. And one of the things that this crisis forced me to do was to go back through um, particularly the Old Testament and look at the different sorts of lament. Because sometimes, as in the Book of Lamentations, which is just this obviously amazing poem, um, it's very clear from the first chapter that the reason Israel is in such a mess is, and they perfectly well know it, is because they have sinned. And Mm. they've sinned lamentably and lamentably. And um, it's got worse and worse. Like Daniel 9. Daniel says, yeah, you, you told us that if we misbehave, you would do this. And we did. And you did. And we're sorry. Now, please, can we do something about it? Um, so that, that's the whole strand of lament, which says, yes, this was our fault. And it's come upon us. And there it is. But then there is this other strand of lament in Scripture, which actually goes back to the Israelites in Egypt. I don't think I say this in the book, but it's been striking me. That when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and they cry to the Lord in their suffering, there is never a sense there that they are there because they'd sinned. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Jacob and his sons were a right child. They they sinned all right in all sorts of ways. Um, but at no point does either Genesis or Exodus say, and by the way, you were there because mm-hmm. you'd sinned. Yeah. Um, it's simply they're in a mess. Now please, mm-hmm. Lord, get us out of it. And that is then picked up by some of the Psalms. I mean, uh, Psalm 73, the, the guy knows perfectly well that the, the proper pattern is if you do well, God will reward you, and if you do badly, you'll get punished. And he says, but actually, look at those wicked guys. They're having a good time, and here am I, and I ain't done nothing wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And look what's happened to me. And then there is a sort of resolution. But then particularly Psalm 44, and where the psalmist says, look, all this has come upon us, yet we have not played false. We have not mm-hmm. turned back on the covenant. We have not gone wrong. So mm. now you jolly well better sort this out. And it's very interesting to me that it's Psalm 44 that's one of the key passages that Paul has in his head when he's writing Romans 8. And he alludes to it um, in that place where uh, the, 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 the spirit is groaning within us and God who searches the heart knows the mind of the spirit, which is a, a reference to one bit of Psalm 44, um, mm. that, that God knows the secrets of the heart. And then he comes back to it for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And there may be something in that for your sake, that, that maybe there's a redemptive purpose here, but, but we can't figure out what that might be. We just know it's a mess and we didn't deserve it. And then, of course, above all of that is the book of Job. And the book mm. of Job is the standard answer, of course, to mm. anyone who says, oh, bad things happened to you. That must be because you've sinned and you've been very naughty. You need to say sorry. Yeah, yeah you may have sinned. That, that, that may be one element in it. But, mm-hmm. but it's Job's comforters who say that to Job. And right. Job knows that's wrong, and God knows that's wrong, and the reader knows that's wrong. Mm-hmm. So we really, we really have to be very, very careful before we say, as many people said to me after I wrote that initial article in Time magazine a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. which was just a little one-off, just a little 800-word article. Um, I, I got sick for it. People were saying, mm-hmm. oh, N.T. White never reads his Bible because it's clear that Prophet Amos says, um, you did this, so therefore this is going to happen. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, the prophet Amos did say that, mm-hmm. but right. And so, so then that—that's that whole strand of puzzled lament. You know, in a sense, if we could see the reason, then yeah, sure, okay, right. Came up, we confess. But the real problem comes when you can't see. Right. The reason. Yeah. That's, and that's you know, and if somebody says, "Oh, the pandemic has happened because um, 
such and such a country has, I don't know, permitted gay marriage or whatever it is. I say, are you really going to say God caused this virus to escape from a market or a laboratory or whatever it was in the middle of China to kill tens of thousands of people, hundreds Mm -hmm. of thousands, Mm -hmm. in order to make that point? Mm-hmm. Had nothing, you know, so what are we saying about God if we go to that kind of nonsense? Right. And I think the other thing is that throughout church history, there have been pandemics, there have been epidemics, there have been plagues, there have been black death, there have been all sorts of things. And uh, it's just in our day, we kind of live in a cosseted post-enlightenment, new scientific medical world where we assume that that all happened some other time, but now we are right. clear of all that. Right. The answer is no, sorry, we are, we are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're not likely to be anytime soon. Um, and, and there is a proper humility about that, which mm-hmm. I think most of us in Western Christianity really lack. Mm. So I could go on. Anyway. Yeah, well, I wanted to, I wanted to ask about that, that Time article that, that you just mentioned. For, for the listeners who may be interested in tracking this down, uh, it came out March 29th, and it was titled, Christianity Offers No Answers About the Coronavirus, It's Not Supposed To. And you mentioned some response that you've received. I'm yeah, curious yeah. to know what sort of development in your thinking has there been since writing that, that Time article up until you know, the publication yeah. of this new book? Right. Well, the first thing to say is that that headline was not written by me. Oh, okay. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, if if you do any journalism, you quickly discover that you you write the article. Somebody then edits the article. You don't always see the article before it goes off. Sure. And somebody else adds a heading to it. Yeah. And I, I spoke to the person who who did the heading, and she said, "Well, she said I thought that kind of." Um, stretch the point and would make people look up and take notice. And I thought, yeah, it sure did that. <laughs> it sure did that. <laughs> but I've I've had this before with with stuff in newspapers that the, the headline is designed to catch the eye, um, purely a commercial thing. But I mean, I, I think what I was really saying was I had already even at that stage heard people say, oh, it's because people sinned, or oh, it, it, this is the beginning of the end of the world. But this means that the rapture is about to happen, or um, Armageddon's about to happen or something. And I would say, excuse me, now who's not reading their Bible? Jesus says there'll be wars and rumors of wars and famines and goodness knows what, but just don't let them phase you. Um, keep cool, keep calm and trust me. Um, and uh, so th- the idea that Christianity ought to be able to provide a rationalistic solution, um, which would, in, th- this actually goes down to the quite deep philosophical point about would it be immoral to try to solve the problem of evil? You know, because there mm. are some Christian theologians who say God permits evil in order that um, heroism may happen, in order that virtue may have a chance to shine out, and you know, God will have the Holocaust in order that people would rise to a level of human nobility that they wouldn't otherwise have risen to. And when I hear people saying that, it almost makes you physically sick. Mm. I think, um, and, and what's going on there is that people are constructing a cosmos in which there is a God-given place for evil. Mm. And I think that's near blasphemy. Mm. And I think part of the whole point is that evil is absurd in the sense it doesn't belong in God's good world. It's Mm. an intruder, it's a spoiler, it's a messer up. Mm. And if we try to say, oh, let's construct a picture, well, we can see why that happened, then that's all right. Mm. Then we may have made God look logical at the cost of making him look like a monster. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, I'd rather have an illogical God than a monstrous yeah. God. <laughs> of course, it isn't illogical in that. Hmm. Um, it's just that, that uh, we, we, we live in a fallen world, a world which groans in travel. And so the whole thing for me goes back to Romans 8. So I, I did go back to Romans 8. And actually, I had some correspondence with your friend and mine, Haley Gorod, Haley Gorod yeah. Yeah. who um, did her own riff on Romans 8.28 towards the end of her dissertation. She mm-hmm. developed that a bit in the published version. Right. And I, I was pushing her to develop it a bit more. And Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesman, they take the same line. Um, and interestingly, Jewett in his commentary does a similar thing, but not quite the same. Um, and so I, I actually had fun lining that up and getting yeah. to and fro with Brian and Sylvia and with Haley and saying, now, should we be reading it like this? And and I think because I think so many Christians go back to Romans eight, all, all things work together for good for those who love God. And actually, the word "work together" synergo hmm. with the dative means that person A works with is a co-worker with hmm. the person who's in the dative. Hmm. And it's now absolutely clear to me. And if I was rewriting my commentary, I would want to beef this up. Right. But, that what Paul is saying is that God, who searches the hearts, 827, mm. that God works with those who love him, and the position of the phrase, those who love him, at the beginning of the verse, indicates that that's a way of construing what it means to be somebody whose heart is being searched by God and who is groaning with the mind of the Spirit, you know, mm. caught up in this divine trialogue. Um, that God works with his prayerful, lamenting people to bring about good. And that's why I've said more explicitly now than I was thinking when I wrote the time article, that lament is the place to be because that's where the mystery of the Trinity in the middle of the messed up world Mm. is active to bring about whatever good God is going to bring about. But Mm. in the nature of the case, we don't know what that is because it says even the spirit doesn't have words to say at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so if we find ourselves silenced, then that, that's probably a good place to be. We won't stay that way forever, but the moment lament is the place. To be. I notice, by the way, there's quite a bit of recent literature, popular as well as academic, on lament. Mm. It's as though more people have been prepared to come out in the open and say, this is a biblical tradition we need to retrieve a lot more intention. Now, you already touched on this a little bit when you talked about some of the kind of eschatological elements of how people have been interpreting the coronavirus. You know, there's been a lot of speculation I've seen on Facebook about how the vaccine is the mark of the beast. And in addition to this, you know, spreading virus, we have the murder hornets, which, you know, may or may not remind us of like certain creatures from Revelation who, you know, (laughs) one wishes they were dead if they're stung by it, these sorts of things. Um, What would you say about those who want to interpret the global pandemic in terms of the Great Tribulation? I I would say, please, please take a long, deep breath, go for a long walk, um, have whatever liquid (laughs) refreshment is going to help you with this, um, and just talk wisely and listen wisely to people who know how to read a popular Hmm. because every generation has tried to do that, whether it was the First World War, whether it was the Crimean War, whether it was the um, uh, American Civil War. At times of crisis, people lurch towards 
mm. easy but trivial misinterpretations of the great book. I'm not saying that God in his infinite wisdom and inspiring scripture can't send out hints and guesses which may come into land in surprising places. Mm-hmm. But no, those hornets are not predicted in the book of Revelation. <laughs> there are hornets all over the world. There are locusts. I mean, the, the, there is a plague of locusts going on in East Africa. Who, who your Facebook friends know that. Mm-hmm. Um, a massive plague of locusts. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a very serious thing. Um, as far as I know, nobody in America has even spotted that in order mm. to say, ah, this is, you know, we're going back to Egypt plague or whatever. But it, stuff happens all the time. And that's why God's people have to learn the rhythm of lament as well as celebration. But um, in, terms of, in terms of the tribulation, no. Apart from anything else, I, I'm not a, I don't read eschatology in that way, that there yep. will be a single tribulation. Right in in the classic dispensational fashion, I just right. never never bought. Um, so so I, I mean I know that probably a third of your listeners that rules me out. Um, <laughs> out of darkness right there. But I, sorry. I, I hope I hope not a third. I I don't I don't run in as as many uh, dispensational circles as I used to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, as I say in the book, God can do whatever God wants to do. I don't want to limit God. If God wants to put out signs and wonders which have a specific call to people, God's well capable of doing that. But here's the central point of the book, is that when we look at Jesus and the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount and Mm. Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, it's as though all the lament and all the Psalms and all the lamentations in Daniel 9 and all that, they all come rushing together and focus on Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. And if somebody says, oh, this is a sign that the kingdom is coming, I say the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray every day is a prayer for the kingdom to come. Mm-hmm. I pray that prayer two or three times every day. Mm-hmm. I don't need or I shouldn't need a pandemic to remind me to be right. ready for the kingdom to come at any moment. Mm-hmm. Likewise, if somebody says, oh, this is a sign that we need to repent of our sins, the Lord's Prayer tells me to say, forgive us our trespasses every mm-hmm. day that I'm alive, and I, I need to do that. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't need to be reminded of that by mm-hmm. a pandemic or something. As I say, God is well capable of giving me a kick on the shins and saying, hey, yeah. you're going the wrong way, turn around. But there's a psalm about that which says, don't be like horse or mule, which has to be held in place with bit and bridle. In other words, we should be more sensitive to the will of God and not mm. need to be punched on the nose in, in this sort of way. So um, I think we should be, be very careful about that because then I notice in the New Testament, this really struck me, um, I think after I wrote that article at the time, um, Paul on the Areopagus, when he tells the Athenians to repent, there are lots of things in the Athenians' past history he could have said, ah, that was a sign that you were being called to repent. The only sign he will give them is Jesus crucified and raised from the dead. Mm. That God has fixed a day on which you judge the word, therefore repent. He's given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. He doesn't say, oh, and remember the time the Romans attacked your city um, a century ago. That was mm. a sign if only you'd been listening. To mm. no, Jesus is the only sign. Other, if there are other things, they corroborate and explain Jesus, but they don't function mm. independently. This mm. is, you could say, the sort of body. Hmm. Um, what we learn of God, we learn through Jesus. And, right. And, and I think it's one of the things I learned through doing the Gifford lectures. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to read them yet, by the way. I've got one or two friends who are reading them now and emailing me. It's really rather fun two years down the track getting the feedback. <laughs> um, 
but uh, one of the one of the crucial things there is that so much theology of the 18th and 19th century which we are still wrestling is really all about god the creator god the god of providence all the debates mm -hmm. about darwin and so on mm -hmm. and a lot of that stuff was trying to construct the picture of god and then you would turn around and say oh and god is the father of jesus or jesus is the embodiment of god or something mm -hmm. um and the new testament insists that we do it the other way we mm -hmm. only know who god is when we look at the incarnate son john mm -hmm. is very clear about it. paul is very clear about it. Mm -hmm. and so uh, in a sense this for me reinforces something that I was trying to articulate anyway about about learning about who God really is. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to dive into the Gifford Lectures this summer. I'm teaching a class okay. at, at Bethel Seminary on faith, hope, and love, and I plan to have you as a dialogue partner, especially for that hope section of, of the class. And in fact, I thought that might be a great way for us to end our time just now because one of your most popular books and perhaps my favorite of yours is Surprised by Hope. And I was curious how you might want to articulate the message of hope right now in this global pandemic. Yeah, I mean, the message of hope uh, begins for the Christian with Jesus' resurrection. Uh, obviously, it's rooted in the Old Testament, in all the great covenant promises to which the resurrection of Jesus is the answer. Yes, mm -hmm. here it is. This is hope in person. You know, when Mary and Martha say, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Um, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And they say, well, he'll rise again on the last day. In other words, big deal. Jesus said, hey, I am the resurrection and the life. Hope has come forward into the present to meet us in person. Mm -hmm. And in Jesus' resurrection, we have the sure anchor for that. I, I say in the book something about um, all our language about God's future is like a set of signposts pointing into a bright mist. And I had an email from somebody just this morning saying, well, that's all very well. So you guess that the bright mist looks like this, and I might guess it looks like that. No, this isn't a guess. We have the resurrection of Jesus, which tells us very clearly, as Paul says in First Corinthians, um, what our own resurrection and the ultimate future is going to be like. That is the anchor. And that, by the way, is um, Gifford Lectures Chapter 6. So I hope you enjoyed <laughs> when you get there. Brilliant. Um, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff there, which, which is I've learned a lot through writing that stuff. Mm. But I think I then want to say, from the very beginning, the early church behaved as resurrection people. Mm. They fed the hungry. They looked out for the poor. They did education. They did medicine, which in the ancient world, as you know, you could only get education and medicine if you had money. If mm. you didn't, tough. Uh, that's the elite. The early church. Uh, were, were, were doctors, they were teachers, they, were, they taught people who were illiterate to read, mm. um, and they cared for the poor. And this was the sign of hope. This is the way in which the resurrection of Jesus as the physical, visible symbol of hope translates into the life of the church. And it, it's the same as with justification by faith in Romans 1 to 8, turning itself into uh, fellowship by faith in Romans 14 and 15 that when you welcome one another in Romans 14 and 15, mm -hmm. that is the sign when people greet you with the peace of Christ, when they hug you, when they pray with you, when they mm -hmm. rejoice and, and weep with you, that you are part of the family. Mm -hmm. That's the consolidation of justification. And in the same way, the active ministry of the church in going out into the world and being a sign of hope mm -hmm. is uh, the, the, the instantiation of Jesus' resurrection. That's why mm. in the book I quote this wonderful poem from my friend Malcolm Geit, who is a 
a clergyman in Cambridge, mm -hmm. who's chaplain of one of the Cambridge colleges, is a great uh, modern Christian poet. And he talks about Jesus escaping from our locked churches mm -hmm. and being out on the street and in the hospital wards and ministering mm -hmm. to the sick and the dying. And, and that's going on. I mean, I didn't say this in the book, but it's true that at the moment, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who lives in Lambeth Palace, mm. has been volunteering as a nurse mm. in St. Thomas's Hospital, which is just across the street from, mm. from where he lives. He's not staying in his palace. He's yeah. out there putting on the protective equipment, praying with the sick and the dying. And it seems to me that's where hope comes, mm. Where, mm. where we don't just talk about it and say, go home and think about it. But we mm. actually do things which bring signs of hope for people in the midst mm. of that. What the church at its best has always done. Mm. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful reminder and a beautiful admonition for us as well during, during this time. And uh, just want to say thank you, Professor Wright, for your time and for, for joining us on the Two Cities podcast. Good to talk to you. I'm sorry I was late. and I'm sorry that we couldn't make the original thing work. It's the, the technology is always keeping us guessing. It, it, it is, but it, it, it worked and, uh, and it's been wonderful great. chatting with you. So I it's hope you great to talk to you again. Too. Yeah, yeah okay. I hope you and Maggie uh, stay safe and sane. Thank you very much indeed. All the very best, John. Bye-bye. like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com.